0: The Lord be with you. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation to give the Wilson Addis Lecture this year. I'm very honoured, and uh, I had heard about this building, and I'm glad to be in it. Beautiful building, uh, remarking remarking uh, that it almost looks unbaptist to my Presbyterian ears, but lovely building. And thank you to Professor Brian Brewer for your kindness and friendship as my host and um, bringing me here. After 30 years of seminary teaching and of countless lectures given, innumerable books read, and a few written, there is no shortage of words that could fill up my allotted 50 minutes. This is my one shot at you, most likely. And the thrust is to be both academic and practical. So it seems appropriate this morning to cut straight to the chase and give you today what has intentionally been for me the dominant focus of my teaching and writing and preaching. I want to talk about Jesus. I can think of nothing more urgent More consequential and more practically relevant to faith and to ministry than to talk about Jesus. And in my view, the deepest and gravest problem facing the practice of ministry today is that our Christology is too small and too timid. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? That's my question. This is my topic, and I want to address it in dialogue with my own teacher, Thomas F. Torrance, a theologian uh, characterized especially by a robust appropriation of Nicene Christology. Tom Torrance is arguably the most significant 20th century British theologian. And I want to introduce you to him as well in, in my conversation in the hopes that you'll go out and read something of Tom Torrance. There's much to read. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? That is not a quizzical question. It's not a stand-off, distant question. It's not a speculative question. Christ's personhood is not a neutral datum of experience that we can manipulate at will. Rather, in this question, we are trying more faithfully to understand who God is who has revealed himself to us, who has encountered us, intruded into our lives, and brought us in relationship precisely in, through, and with this man who is God, whose name is Jesus. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world is a question put by faith, not by unfaith. A question put in Christ, not apart from Christ. It's a heuristic question that arises out of the person of Jesus in his very being as the incarnate Savior of the world, whom we already know as Lord. Acts 9.5, Saul of Tarsus, great Christological question, Who are you, Lord? Not just who are you, That the question of the identity concerning the person of Christ is asked in the context already of the confession of faith. And so there's a sense in which we affirm that in some measure, we already know the answer to the question we pose. But we seek to enter more deeply, more radically, more transformatively, into To the reality of Jesus Christ. Is what we preach, teach, faithful to who Jesus is and what he did? To who he continues to be and who he yet will be? It is inasmuch as Jesus Christ has revealed himself to us as the incarnate Savior... And in a sense, therefore, the answer to our questions, even before we know what our questions are, it is in these terms that we pose our questions in order to enter more deeply and more convertedly into a knowledge of the one whom we confess to be Savior and Lord. Tom Torrance has expressed it this way. This is what we are about this morning. Quote, in scientific theology… We begin with actual knowledge of God and seek to test and clarify this knowledge by inquiring carefully into the relation between our knowing God and God himself in his being and nature, end quote. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? This is to enter into the, the great central mystery of Christian faith, the incarnation itself the church and Christian faith, stand or fall on the reality and the truth of the Incarnation. The human baby of Bethlehem is God. Are you shocked by that anymore? Stunned by that anymore? Astonished? The Incarnation is the event in which faith associates the eternal God with contingent history and attributes saving significance to it. It seems to me there's no way around the observation that this central mystery of faith is a miracle in which we are forced to free our understanding of God from the vice-like grip of predetermined metaphysical and epistemological categories of thought, and to allow the subject of our Christological inquiry to create his own ground and allow his categories to emerge for our understanding of him. We know Jesus on Jesus' terms. Who are you, Lord? Acts 9.5. And that's answered by revelation. I am Jesus. The revelation is his person in historical and ontological union, in empirical and theological union, in hypostatic or personal union. It seems to me this is the basic issue. Everything in theology that is Christian follows from this who question. A question directed to a living Lord, not to an idea, not to a sentence, not to a proposition, but to a personal reality who encounters us on his own terms. And I think this is in agreement with John Calvin's famous dictum. God works in his elect in two ways, within through his Spirit and without through his Word. Were we to begin anywhere else than with the Lord who encounters us, as the one who through the Spirit is proclaimed in sermon and celebrated in sacrament, and who as such by the Spirit brings us into union and communion with himself, and through that into communion with the Father. Were that not to be the case, a deistic axiom would already control our thinking. And I think so much this is the case in contemporary North American Christian life today. Reflecting on a God who does not act in the world. A God who did not become incarnate. A God who does not bring us into relationship with himself. A God who in the nature of the case is not really knowable, but is somehow in some way out there. The obverse is the recognition that by asking the who question, arising from being encountered by a living, reigning, and acting Lord whose name is Jesus, we already acknowledge a personal relatedness as we do our theology. Who are you, Lord? So, being encountered by Jesus Christ is not a neutral datum of experience. Rather, our Christology is put within the framework of faith and confession. You cannot seriously pose the Christological question without being a person of worship. In our Christological reflections, we are dealing with a person towards whom the proper attitude is not one of scientific, detached curiosity. We are Ultimately, dealing in an attitude of worship and adoration, trust, and obedience. We do our Christology on our knees. Our task in Christology, then, following the teaching of Tom Torrance, is to yield the obedience of our mind to what is given, which is God's basic self-revelation in its objective reality, Jesus Christ. In general terms and science, knowledge is a work of obedience as the object of our knowledge gives itself to be known insofar as it is unveiled under investigation. But in theology especially, where we seek to know God, that knowledge can only be on God's terms. I cannot batter God into submitting to my Christological inquiries. I cannot manipulate The Holy One of Israel, the Ancient of Days, into meeting my questions cannot coerce God. I can only allow my mind under the impact of the Holy Spirit to be obedient and humble before God. And the remarkable thing is that in the Spirit and through Jesus Christ, the Father seeks to be known. Astonishing. And I can't appeal to anything outside of this event of encounter that would ratify my knowledge of God. What outside the lordship of Jesus Christ can I appeal, if he is Pantocrator, Lord of all, can I appeal in order that would ratify him? There's no independent, neutral court of appeal. There is no warrant for knowledge of Christ's lordship that would entail an epistemological frontier beyond which he is not Lord. Knowledge of God through God's self-revelation in its objective reality, Jesus Christ, is, we might say, its own thing. God gives himself to be known out of pure grace. Tom Torrance writes, We have no capacity or power within ourselves giving us the ability to have mastery over this fact in the very act of our knowing Christ he is mastered he is master and we are mastered revelation is received in faith and the mode of reception the mode of attitude by which we do our christology seems to me to be gratitude and wonder As we sit at our desks, pondering the sermon for the coming Sunday, as you sit at your desk writing the Lenten study for Wednesday evening, as we think even about our own personal Lenten devotions, these cardinal virtues, gratitude and wonder, seem especially commendable in this season Let me be bold to say that when both our hearts and our minds are filled with gratitude and wonder before the miracle of God for us as the man Jesus, there will be little space left for boredom in ministry. When joy rises up because the living Lord of the cosmos has personally engaged us, I think the attitude, the pious attitude, is we discover we are like little children practicing the piety of becoming bug-eyed, amazed, and filled with energy when we realize that our ministry is the gift of the living God. So, the starting point for Christology, according to Torrance, and I follow this, is the self-givenness of Jesus Christ. And this event has the essential character of mystery. I tell my students again and again, if you think you can explain this, you haven't. I don't expect to explain, let alone actually understand the most important things in my life. Whether my love for my wife of 36 years, or my love for my three children, or, or, or my faith in a living and reigning Lord Jesus. In faith, an act of the Holy Spirit upon us, yet to an act of trusting obedience of heart and mind, we confess that when we are encountered by Jesus Christ, he confronts us as God and as a man in the unity of his one person. I don't expect to be able to explain that. This is a fundamental mystery to be adored rather than picked apart. And our theological task, says Torrance, is to begin with the awareness and acknowledgement of that mystery as as the actual object which we seek to know theologically. And we seek to clarify our knowledge of this mystery because we are to love God with our minds. And, says Torrance, if we are to be true and faithful to it, In his language, if we are to be scientific and rational before the mystery of God and Christ, to behave in terms of the nature of this mystery that confronts us, we must not begin by denying its mystery character or by transmuting it into something non-mysterious. We must wrestle with it, he says, inquire of it, be obedient to it, and seek in every way to let it, rather maybe to let him declare Himself to us. And here is the staggering reality. God wants to be known by us. And here our reason is under obedience, under obedience to God's grace, and the way of that grace incarnate in history as the man Jesus. And so we are confronted again and again and again by the fundamental mystery of His person. Now, here I'm going to step on some dangerous ground. I want to emphasize that we must start with the whole mystery of Christ, not from one aspect of this mystery, neither cutting off His divinity from His humanity in order to apprehend the historical Jesus, or cutting off the historical Jesus in order to apprehend his transcendence, forgetting that even in his ascension, as John Knox of Edinburgh used to say, he carries the selfsame body, his history, into the presence of the Father. We have before us in Jesus Christ, God in time, God as a man, God active in history. The whole gospel is entailed with this givenness. And what we have to deal with in Christology is incarnation, the becoming carnal, carnation of God. Some of you will have marquees outside your church buildings, and it may be next Christmas, your sermon title will be The Carnality of God in Jesus Christ. We have in Jesus Christ, God in time, God as a man, God active in history, disavowing any deistic disjunction or separation between God and history. The whole gospel is entailed with this givenness, with incarnation, in which the unity of God and humankind comes into history as the man Jesus, established from the side of God for our salvation and knowledge of God through revelation. All attempts to start Christology somewhere else seem to me to fail to deal seriously with the unity that is Jesus Christ. As Torrance often used to tell us in Edinburgh in his classroom, there is no Jesus Christ in the New Testament who is not the dogmatic Christ. Holy God, holy human. We cannot pick apart what God has put together in utero. Hologos sarx agenato, The Word became flesh. Christ, clothed with his humanity, proclaims his message in word and life and deed. Christ in his humanity... Not only the author and agent of our salvation, but himself, as himself in our flesh, the source and substance of it. Not just what he does, but who he is, or to put it differently, he does who he is. Terrible English. Here I am referring to the saving significance of him, not just what he does, of him, himself. For Jesus Christ himself is already the atonement, the atonement, himself between God and humankind. He is in himself as such, comes to us with his own word and self-revelation, as his grace and love are lived out in human history in the unity of his Person. And thus we can only know him insofar as he offers himself up in his ministry for us as a ministry on the one hand equally of revelation and reconciliation. They cannot be ripped apart. Following Calvin, Torrance insists, that Christ cannot be separated from his mission of revelation and reconciliation. He cannot be separated from the fact that he is mediator, and therefore we cannot know him, following Calvin says, torn, naked, as it were, without his clothing. The only Christ we know is Jesus clothed with his gospel. Christ with all his human life and historical acts and his self-communication to us through them. In this way, Christ and his ministry... His person and His work are held together for us and for our salvation. And we only know this according to the way in which He presents Himself through the apostolic charisma, kata pneuma, the apostolic testimony according to the Spirit. And so immediately in our Christology and theology, we find we're having to deal with a conjunction now of thought and Piety. Because it's in the spirit that we know him. Theology and faith. Conjoined as the mode of approach to the mystery of Christ. We cannot know Jesus Christ. But that we are on our knees in adoring worship and love. But know him we do. In an act of continual transformation of mind for ours is a thinking faith. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? En route to answering my question, I am arguing that there's no knowledge of a Jesus Christ who is not also Savior. No knowledge of a merely historical Jesus who is not also God with us and God for us. We come to our theology in the mode of worship as a people of faith who seek to know the Lord Jesus more fully and more faithfully. Why? Because he's not just spoken of in the past tense, we must also speak of him in the present tense as a living, reigning, and acting Lord. We come to our Christology surely or we don't come to it at all with our hearts beating fast and our minds quickened with anticipation because we can't wait for the next time when we get into a pulpit and we have to preach this Lord as a living, reigning, and acting Lord. We can't wait to teach the next adult Sunday school class because we're talking about a living, reigning, and acting Lord. We can't wait to get into the next ICU unit to meet a person who may be dying and on machines that we can't even begin to understand where they're going or what they're doing because we want to bear witness to a Lord who lives and acts and reigns. And as I tell my students when you walk into a hospital room you don't bring Jesus with you. He's already there. Your job is to have the Christological hermeneutic so you can identify what he's up to and pray that by the Spirit you get in on that. John 15 5. Apart from me you can do nothing. So this is not academic in the sense of being distant, neutral, and abstract. Theology and especially Christology, catabnuma uh, in the Spirit is, has to be a passionate science, wonder-filled and amazing. For our subject matter is Jesus Lord, living, reigning, acting, history transforming, and kingdom of God bringing. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? I believe today we need to say more about the incarnation. Let's stop being timid. I'm a Scot, and I'm often back in Scotland and in uh, Britain, and I have the image of the church in Britain on tiptoes trying to be as quiet as possible so as not to offend anybody. The scandal of the gospel, hologos sarks again until the word became flesh. Let's no longer be timid. And to that end, I want to move now to say something of our Lord's conception and birth because at least as a Presbyterian in my tribe, nobody much talks about this anymore. For here is the beginning of His incarnate person. And already as I'm talking about the beginning of His incarnate person, His conception and birth, I am talking soteriology and not just Christology because you cannot separate them. I'm talking at once of revelation and of atonement because you cannot separate them. So now I want to run through a couple of paragraphs that are really quite impossible. And maybe have to be read rather than listened to. But I want to make five very quick points just for completion's sake. And then move on. Take this from this what you can and we'll then move on. Five brief points. First, the act of God the Son and the act of God the Word are one act. For revelation and reconciliation belong indissolubly together. This theme repeats throughout Tom Torrance's work over 50 years. As Son, God comes to effect reconciliation. As Word, God comes as revelation. The hypostatic or personal unity between reconciliation and revelation is a point of cardinal importance. Faith is not just cognitive. It is also, I know that my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer. Jesus is not just a sentence or a proposition or an argument. Second, God comes as reconciliation and revelation by taking on sinful human flesh. By way of exchange, katalagi, substitution, he who knew no sin in the flesh becomes sin-bearer for us. This is the heart of the atonement and it begins with incarnation. Christ in the incarnation does not assume some kind of ideal humanity. If that were the case, I have no hope. He needs to assume my humanity in its sin and separation and broken communion with the Father. He takes humanity precisely under the judgment of God, humanity in its hell-bound, sin-sick alienation from God. Third, in being made flesh for us, Torns following an Athanasian Christology – this blows my mind – argues that Christ is the Word of God addressed to us and God's word received, obeyed, and lived out in active answer to God's truth. Thus, from God, as it were, and from within our humanity, Christ is God for us and humankind faithfully for God in the unity of his person. I think too much in atonement theology has been made of the passive obedience of Christ and too little of his active obedience. The Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, what's next? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. What happened to his life? Fourth, the whole incarnational movement is represented then as the descent and ascent of Christ from incarnation to ascension. Ascension. You all celebrate Christmas in Waco, Texas? You have funny services, give presents, have parties. We celebrate the descent. When did you last have an Ascension Day party? When did you last give an Ascension Day present? The loss of the Ascension. I've been saying this over a number of books. Now, the loss of the ascension, I think, is one of the most critical, dangerous aspects in our present theology of ministry because we lose Christ as a present living and acting Lord and tend then only to speak of Jesus in the past tense. The loss of the ascension in our theology of the incarnation, I think, has been catastrophic for the practice of ministry because it's pushed everything back onto us to actualize what maybe He makes possible, rather than for us to get in on that He is the actuality who makes possible our ministry. I would refer you to some of my books out there for more of that, and I won't say any more at the moment. The fifth point I want to make, God becomes flesh, but does so without ceasing to be the eternal Word. Now, at this point, I have no idea what I'm talking about, because how can God become flesh without ceasing to be the eternal Word? And the Lutherans used to ask Calvin, uh, Calvinists, you know, when the baby of Bethlehem was born, who was running the universe? Well, that's the mystery. Clearly, this is a miracle in which the eternal Word becomes temporal for us, but does so without ceasing to be the eternal Word. He comes in the form of a servant in the form of veiling himself, The classical text, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But I think there's no ground here for suggesting a metaphysical change in God the Son. Kenosis, the self-emptying of the Son, designates the redemptive descent of the Son into the flesh of our humanity in becoming human. Even in his veiling, though, the Son did not empty himself of his divinity Otherwise, God has not come among us fully as God. At this point, I believe Torrance is right on the money not to answer how the Word became flesh, quoting him, how recedes into the divine nature of the Son of God and is beyond our observation and understanding. It's God's secret. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? Clearly, We must speak now of Christ's birth into our humanity. If the eternal Word did not become human without ceasing to be God, if the eternal Word did not become human without ceasing to be God, we neither know God nor are delivered from our sins. So I want now to turn towards the end of my lecture and begin by reasserting the mystery of Christ's birth into our humanity the conception and birth of jesus are inconceivable in our thought however we approach this we are stubbornly confronted by a miracle why not i don't know how god created the world i don't know how the son became incarnate i don't know how the son was raised i don't know how the the son ascended these are God's secrets. The Bible seems to me not interested in the metaphysics. Thus it is so. And by a miracle of the Spirit, I've I decided to give my life and live unto my death in terms of this. Matthew and Luke both give an account of Jesus' miraculous conception and birth while clearly noting his human origin through Mary. In Matthew, Jesus is son of Joseph, at the direction of God, thus setting him as a son of David. Genealogically, both Gospels, however, make clear that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. Thereafter, Joseph is of little importance in the account, and no mention of him in Mark. Mark also makes no mention of the virgin birth. In fact, after the completion of the accounts of the birth of Jesus, no mention is made of the virgin birth again, and Luke records no account of it in the preaching of the early church in Acts. What are we to make of this? Torrance, in his discussions on John and Paul in this regard, suggests that the doctrines of the divine generation of Jesus and of the virgin birth were deeply, though very subtly, woven into the mind of the church from the earliest days. And if you want to explore that further, I refer you to his huge book, Incarnation. But I can sum up where we are at this point. Stressing both the continuity with our humanity born of Mary, and the discontinuity with our humanity born from above. Torrance is right, I think, to say that the doctrine of the virgin birth is not a theory of explanation. It was a transcendent act of free divine grace Involving a miracle of God's creative agency within our human existence. It is an event, it seems to me, with two sides to it. There is an outward visible event, born of the Virgin Mary. And there's an invisible, I don't know what other word to use, supernatural, metaphysical aspect conceived by the Holy Ghost the how of the event is an act of God that recedes back into the mystery of God and is beyond human observation and understanding. As such, the virgin birth cannot be understood in terms of biology within the closed continuum of cause and effect because it is an act of God, the Creator, who erupts creatively in the womb of Mary, in a way that is beyond our understanding. Not an act out of nothing, but an act from within human existence, a physical and a metaphysical event. says, Tarnes, remarkably, the virgin birth, quote, is the sign, in fact, that he who is born of Mary is the creator of, Himself. Wow. The virgin birth cannot be separated from the mystery of Christ. That is, apart from the union of divine and human natures in personal existence. As a sign, the virgin birth points to this, to this hypostatic or personal union, in which inward reality and outward form constitute the incarnation and as such the atoning union. The virgin birth corresponds a sign to the nature of that which it signifies, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of his birth, the mystery of his person belong together and our knowing of this mystery similarly forces the inevitable tension upon our minds when we recognize that both the inward act and the outward event must be allowed a place in our thinking. But there's a soteriological impulse here too because the resurrection is the mystery that the person of Christ is now fully revealed that he who was born of the virgin and veiled in human flesh is now disclosed to be Lord. The resurrection as a physical bodily event corresponds to the birth of Jesus as a physical bodily event. To see the resurrection simply as a metaphorical event in some regard or other is fundamentally to undercut and deconstruct the incarnation. Born of the Virgin Mary, a physical event raised from the virgin tomb, the tomb in which no one else had ever been laid, Luke 23, 53. In this way, bodily resurrection and bodily birth belong together, interpreting one another. As at the birth, the Son is veiled in flesh. At the resurrection, the Son is unveiled, bodily resurrected out of human sin and death, to the glory of His perfect union. Thus, Torrenson insists dramatically, but I think he's right on the money, to deny the virgin birth involves a denial of the bodily resurrection. And let me just add my comment, to deny the bodily resurrection is to deny the virgin birth. Now, what does this mean? It means, first, that the secret of Jesus' existence lies wholly in God's sovereign will and grace. In the virgin birth, God is revealed as creator and redeemer and revealer. Second, Jesus' birth from Mary means that he was a human being. And the virgin birth is inserted into the creed in order to combat the heresy of docetism, the view that in some manner Jesus was not really human. Of course he's human. Third, it also excludes the heresy of Ebionism, the notion that the Son united himself with another man and adopted this body as his own. Theologians among you will have pondered long the doctrine of the anhypostasis. That really means if the Word had not become flesh, Jesus would not have existed. Fourth, the virgin birth excludes synergism, the notion that God and Mary somehow act out together cooperatively. The virgin birth is the doctrine that the whole initiative in redemption is from God. Jesus is not the product of a causal historical process or the product of a cooperative grace from the side of Mary. Incarnation was the entry of eternity into time, a recreative act. Not ex nihilo, but ex virgini, presupposing the first creation, but out of the virgin's womb, the new creation. Out of Mary, a sinner, comes the sinless man who bears upon himself the sin of the whole world. And as Mary is sanctified by her son, we too are given to share in his holiness through union with him. Thus the pattern of redeeming grace is revealed. God takes the initiative to do for us what it is impossible for us to do as we are given to share in the life of Christ and therefore in him to be part of the new creation which he inaugurates. We become in Christ children of God dependent upon the agenital sarx the became of the word in our flesh. Now, I'm told that the mandate of this endowed series is that the lecturer say something practical at the end. <laughs> is what I have been saying impractical? Is The hologos sarxigenito, the word become flesh, impractical, that somehow I have to make relevant when God has come into our history to make us relevant? What could be more practical than the becoming flesh of God? What is more relevant for our needs, our loneliness, our separation from God than the incarnation by which event and person God embraces us and brings us into communion with Himself? What is more hope-giving in a world stagnant with despair and sadness than the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we behold His glories of the only begotten Son of the Father? What is more to the end of joy than that the Savior come and join us to Himself, that in Him and through Him and with Him we would have His life and that life abundantly? What gives us more joy than at the end of the first paragraph of John 15 where Jesus says, Abide in Me, rest in Me, make your home in Me so that My joy may be in you and your joy may be complete? How is that not practical and relevant? What is more needful for the practice of ministry than for us to get in on what Jesus Christ is up to in our world and in our history for the sake of the world? If the most practical thing in all history and all the world unto ages of ages is that the Word became flesh, The most urgent need today in ministry, in my view, is the development of a Christological hermeneutic by which we may both live in and interpret history in Christ, bearing witness to him, to God's salvation. The phone rings. It's four o'clock in the morning. Bill is on the phone. Bill and Mary are faithful members of your congregation. They've been married ten years, no children, but Mary's pregnant. Great joy. What's the matter, Bill? I'm in the car going to the hospital. Mary's hemorrhaging. I'll be there. You get in the car, throw on some clothes, get in the car, and you get to the obstetrics emergency room in the local hospital, and there's Bill in this antiseptic room all by himself. He's, he's facing the wall. He hears your feet steps coming into the room. He turns. His face is tear-strained. You turn to him. You grab him by the shoulder, and you say, Bill, what's the matter? And he says, the baby's dead. Then he looks at his watch and says, Oh, the nurse says we'll get in 1025, just about that time now. Oh, by the way, we want you to baptize the baby. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. The nurse comes, your wife's ready for you now, and you follow him into this birthing room, very antiseptic, and there's his wife, Mary, with the blankets up to her chin like this, frozen grief. And B- Bill goes over and gives his wife a little peck on the cheek. They have nothing in their marriage to know how to cope and how to put actions or words to this experience. You're standing there feeling like an idiot because you can't fix it, you the pastor, And then you notice a bassinet, a little lump, and a cover over the top of it, and you realize that Mary's probably never held her her daughter. You whisper in Bill's ear, and he goes over and he lifts the baby, and there's the three of them, the dead baby, the mother and the father. Oh, pastor, we want you to baptize the baby. What do I do now? And then you remember that you attended my class, on Calvin's doctrine of the ascension. The ministry of the living, reigning, and acting Christ. And you remember that Calvin said there were three things that the Lord is up to. First of all, the Lord prays for you. And so this situation, this tragic situation, you know already, is bathed in the prayers of Jesus. And secondly, Calvin said, and He sends the Holy Spirit. And so you know that now this tragic situation is a charismatic context. The Spirit and power is here. So you take a deep breath and you relax. You're being prayed for. You're being anointed by the Spirit. And the third thing Calvin says is that he takes us in himself and he lifts us up to the Father. So you take the baby and you say, let me show you what Jesus is doing. You take the baby And you say, Jesus is lifting your baby, her name, Elizabeth, and is giving Elizabeth to the Father, and the Father takes her from the Son and cleaves her to his bosom. You're bearing witness to a living, reigning, and acting Lord, not to a proposition or to a theological argument. Who is the incarnate Savior of the world? The answer is Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, of whom the Christmas Lord, we say, clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This is the miracle, mystery, and reality of our salvation that we have been chosen in ministry to bear witness to this. Thanks be to God.